economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. My guest today is Aurelien Mondon. Aurelien is a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics, Languages and International Studies at Bath University in the United Kingdom. He has been studying the far right in Europe and beyond for over a decade now, focusing in particular on its mainstreaming and engaging critically with both the scholarship and its terminology, in particular the term populism. Aurelian is a frequent commentator on the far right in the media and blogs on the topic on Medium. His most recent book, published together with his longtime collaborator Aaron Winter, is called Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far Right Became Mainstream, which was published by Verso in 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Aurelian. Thank you for having me on. So we'll start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? Ah, that's, a, that's a tough question. Uh, the first sports team I ever supported is Saint-Étienne, a French football club. And unfortunately, they are doing horribly this season. So, uh, yeah, it's quite a sensitive issue already. <laughs> I understand that. Second, what is your favorite political song? Well, that's quite a few, but I'm not going to be very original, and I'll pick two if you allow me. The first one is Le Temps des Cerises, which is a song that became the anthem of the French Paris Commune. And the other one is Bella Ciao, which really isn't particularly original, but uh, but still like such a great political song. Like Whenever I hear it, it just really energizes me. So, yeah. Excellent. And then the most difficult question generally, what is your favorite political book? Yeah, that's another tricky one as well. I think I would say Jacques Rancière's The Hatred of Democracy, because to me, it was incredibly formative at a time when I was starting to think about maybe doing a PhD. And it kind of helped me link my previous life to the one I ended up following in, uh, in academia and taking kind of a critical approach to the concept of democracy in a way. So yeah, it was incredibly formative. So if I had to find one political book that really marked me, that would be this one, I think. Awesome. So that wasn't so difficult after all. Now, your latest book with Aaron Winter is called Reactionary Democracy. What do you mean by this term, reactionary democracy? Well, what we mean by the term reactionary democracy is the uses that are made of the concept of democracy to push reactionary ideals. So what we've kind of been tracing in our work, both together and separately with Aaron, really, is the use of certain concepts over the years that have, in a way, helped the mainstreaming of far-right politics. You could think of various concepts, and they've changed over the years. You know, you could think, for example, of the way racism has changed from kind of biological racism to cultural racism, and how this has been couched sometimes in more democratic terms, you know, caring about culture for example. More recently, what we've seen in the various contexts that we're studying, which are really the US, the UK and France, is concepts such as free speech, for example, being weaponized by the right and the far right to you know, push kind of far right ideas into the mainstream, the idea that we should be able to say everything. But of course, the people who say that already have quite a bit of political power. And what they want is not just to say anything. What they want is to say anything that is reactionary, that is racist, homophobic, transphobic, sexist, and so on, without any kind of 
criticism being thrown back at them because then they would call out cancel culture and all of this quite ironically. Other other kind of concepts that we're studying are concepts such as secularism, for example, in France, which have been quite powerful in pushing racist ideas back into the kind of center of politics in France. And really what we try to get to the bottom of, in a way, is that we need to be careful when we kind of think about the concept of democracy, because while democracy is, of course, incredibly positive and emancipatory as a concept, it doesn't have to be so, you know. And what we're trying to get to the bottom of, really, in a way, or try to kind of highlight is that progress is not inevitable. And, you know, the kind of progress that we've been promised, you know, um, with the end of history, Fukuyama, you know, in the 1990s and the fact that eventually things would be fine, eventually everyone would be equal. It was a long struggle. What we're trying to argue is that actually democracy can be hijacked. It doesn't have to actually move us towards progress if we actually don't move it ourselves in a way. And whatever progress has been made over the last few decades can be taken away. And we're seeing this, you know, quite brutally in the United States at the moment. We're seeing it, of course, in the UK as well and in France when it comes to the right of certain communities. You distinguish between illiberal racism and liberal racism in the book as well, which is very much tied to what you just explained. Can you explain to the listener what you exactly mean by illiberal and liberal racism? Of course. So what we do is we build, of course, on a wealth of literature on racism. And we came up with these two terms, not because our take is particularly original necessarily, but because we felt it actually helped us understand, again, the tension between, you know, what the hegemony, the status quo, the, or liberal democracy, and the far right and the extreme right. And what we try to kind of argue with the concepts of liberal and illiberal racism is that the borders are far more porous than we tend to think of them. We tend to think of liberal democracy as a bulwark against the far right, against racism, against authoritarianism. And what we argue is that it can certainly be a bulwark, but it doesn't have to be. And in fact, you know, there's not necessarily black and white, good and evil here. There are far more exchanges between the two than tend to admit. And so what we mean by illiberal racism is the forms of racism which are generally thought of as kind of in the past or linked to the past, the kind of very violent forms of racism, the kind of, you know, white supremacist attacks, for example, the kind of racism that everybody in the kind of mainstream of politics will denounce, even far-right politics politicians or who are part of a kind of reconstructed far right. So, you know, think of your Le Pen's in France, Nigel Farage in the UK, Gert Wilders, they will denounce these attacks. You know, they will say this is unacceptable. We are against this. You know, they will try to move away from biological racism, for example, from fascism, from neo-Nazism and pretend that they've moved on, but they are not like this anymore. Liberal racism, on the other hand, is the racism that kind of is acceptable under liberal norms in many ways. It is acceptable, for one, because it remains part and parcel of many, if not most, or all liberal democracies in a way. It is still very much ingrained in our system, just like we still have very many kind of sexist systemic forms of oppressions in our societies that haven't been completely removed. And even though things are getting better, they are still there. Liberal racism, it's racism that can be couched in liberal terms, the idea that we are better than others in a way. And we've seen that in particular, the case of Islamophobia where Muslim people and Muslim communities were racialized by kind of liberal democracies as the other, as the people we were fighting against, as if all Muslim people were somehow innately unable to fit in within our societies. Or if they were to fit in, they would have to kind of pass tests that we wouldn't require from anyone else. You know, for example, asking them to condemn terrorist attacks that we wouldn't ask all Americans, for example, to do after what happened in Buffalo. And so, yeah, we're looking at the way racism still is very much tied to our system, which is, you know, liberal democracies, which is what we're looking at with Aaron, but also the way some liberal tropes and liberal concepts can allow racism to come back through the back door. 
all the while denouncing the most egregious forms of racism, what we call illiberal racism. So by being in comparison to illiberal racism, it allows kind of liberal racist tropes to enter the mainstream by pretending that they are not racist, at least. So the key thesis of the book is that the far right has become mainstreamed. And before we go into the details of specific countries, what do you mean by the statement that the far right has become mainstreamed? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's really core to the issue to us. And in a way, what matters to us is not so much whether the far right has mainstreamed, but whether the far right ideas have mainstreamed. You know, for example, you know, is Trump far right? At the end of the day, I don't really care whether Trump is far right. You know, to me, it doesn't really matter whether he is far right or not. What matters is the ideas that he has put into the mainstream of politics that are definitely far right. And I think this is a far more important debate from my point of view than deciding whether, you know, Marine Le Pen is far right, although I would argue she is, Trump is far right and so on and so forth. You know, I'm happy to have these kind of discussions, but I think from my point of view, you know, the ideas and the discourse around that is what matters. And what we try to argue with Aaron, but also more recently with Katie Brown, is that we need to pay more attention to discourse when we think about mainstreaming, because we've tended to think as academics, and I've done that as well, to think about the mainstreaming process as something that really placed particular agency on the far right itself. So the far right either moderated or the far right became more extreme if they wanted to fill in a gap or something like that, or the far right became more intelligent about the way they went about things. And then we decided whether they mainstream or not based on whether they did well in elections, for example, or whether other parties were moving to the right and so on. And what we try to argue is that we need to go beyond just looking at A, the far right, and B, elections. And we need to pay attention to the way ideas travel as well between the far right and the mainstream. And this means that we need to kind of, A, think about the mainstream as something contingent, something that moves. There's not just a mainstream that has always been the same. It could move to become more progressive and it could move to become more reactionary. But also we need to pay attention to the role played by the mainstream itself in terms of the way it talks about the far right and the way it talks with the far right, which is really what Katie Brown is working on. Right. The book draws in particular on three cases, France, the UK, and the US. Maybe you can give us one concrete example of each of these cases of mainstreaming. Yeah, of course. We looked at these cases because the ones that we knew best, obviously, but they're also ones that allowed us to show through every chapter different ways in which yeah, mainstreaming has taken place in many ways. In France, we look at it through the kind of construction of the reactionary republic, in a way, and the way many kind of progressive hegemonic concepts, such as the republic, such as laicite, secularism, have been hijacked by the right and the far right to kind of completely change the discourse and to target, in particular, Muslim communities. We also look at the rise of the Front National and we put that in perspective as well and how in the last 20 years in France, we've been talking about the irresistible rise of the Front National. When Jean-Marie Le Pen in 2002 gets to the second round of a presidential election, everyone talks about, you know, the threat to democracy that is posing and all we talk about is the far right. Well, in fact, at the time, the far right is stagnating. The far right is not actually on the rise. What's happening is that the mainstream parties are collapsing and are being widely disliked. We've learned nothing and we're back to almost a similar situation in 2022 in France. In the UK, it was quite different. Of course, many people who would look at the UK would be like, well, but there's no far right in the UK at the moment. And there's been, you know, UKIP. But even at the time when UKIP was on the rise, a lot of people were arguing that UKIP wasn't really a far right party. It was much more like the AfD at the start as well in Germany, a, a party that came up as a Eurosceptic party that was led by people who were generally better off, better educated, and so on. It was also a one-issue party, but we argue that, again, to some extent, regardless whether UKIP is classified as a far-right party, the ideas that UKIP 
keep allowed to move into the mainstream is what matters. We look at the 2014 election, for example, European election where UKIP did best. But of course, the European elections are second order elections. There's massive abstention. People tend to vote in a form of protest. And the only Eurosceptic party at the time was UKIP, which allowed them to win that election. But at that time, UKIP had no members of parliament, did very poorly in national elections, and was the only party in the entire campaign to run on a Eurosceptic platform. And yet they were allowed to drive the agenda for the years to come, which led to, of course, the campaign on the EU referendum, which allowed a lot of kind of far right voices or people from the mainstream who had far right views to push them into the mainstream, anti-immigration and so on and so forth which led to Brexit, which led to, again, more mainstreaming of the far right. And nowadays, when you look at the government in the UK, well, you don't really need a far right because actually a lot of the kind of tropes that are being talked about in terms of hostile environment, in terms of Islamophobia, are part and parcel of what I would call far right discourse. In the United States, of course, you know, we wrote the book in the late 2010s. So we look at the rise of Donald Trump. And again, we try to kind of problematize that and show that this is quite different from the UK and France, where you have far right parties. In France, you have a very established far right party. In the UK, you don't have a very established far right party, but you have one that kind of surfs the wave of Euroscepticism. And in the US, you have something again, completely different where you have Donald Trump. What's interesting about Donald Trump is quite often he's been talked about as Donald Trump. And what we tend to forget is that Donald Trump is not just Donald Trump in 2016. He's also the candidate of one of the two main parties in the United States. And what was quite interesting for us in our book is to look at actually the mythology that is created around Donald Trump as the man of the people, as the kind of taboo breaker and all of these kind of things. Well, in fact, when you look at his electorate in 2016, A, he's hardly a man of the people. He's elected by about 25% of the electorate. And B, this electorate is actually very similar to George W. Bush, right? So it's not a complete break in terms of demographics. He's not the man of the working class or anything like that. And this is what we look at as well in, in the book, the way kind of sections of the populations have been used both to legitimize the far right, but also to be blamed for the rise of the far right at the same time. I already touched a little bit about it, but in the book, you write, in our view, support for the far right has been exaggerated. Can you explain that? It's not because, in our view, the support for the far right has been exaggerated, but we shouldn't worry about the support for the far right. You know, one person who supports the far right is one too many person that supports the far right. There is a significant amount of population in various countries that support the far right. But what we mean by it has been exaggerated is to go back to our case studies, for example, in France, as I said, in 2002, when Jean-Marie Le Pen gets to the second round of a presidential election, he receives 11% of a registered vote in the first round which is exactly what he got in 1995 and which is exactly what he got in 1988. One out of 10 people who are registered to vote in France, nine out of 10 did not vote for Jean-Marie Le Pen. Don't get me wrong, one out of 10 voting for Jean-Marie Le Pen is one too many out of 10, right? But what I'm saying is we ended up in France for the next five years after 2002 talking about the Front National, saying that the Front National had legitimate grievances that they needed to be listened to. And what I say by we is parties of the right, of course, but parties of the left as well did that. The media talked a lot about the Front National, gave the Front National ideas a lot of platforms, albeit negatively. The same happened in the UK as well. You know, UKIP was never particularly popular if you think about national elections. And even if you think about the European elections and you take into account abstention, it wasn't particularly popular, and yet we ended up talking about them a lot. And I'm thinking the same thing about the United States as well. As I said before, Donald Trump gets elected with about 25% of a registered vote. Obviously, we're all aware of the problems with voting in the United States and who's been kicked out of the lists over the years. 
But also, how many of his 25% voted for Donald Trump and how many were just Republican supporters who had always voted Republican? The problem is not so much that we can't talk about that and that it's not concerning, but it's the way we talk about these people, right? And one of the ways that I've been looking at is the process of mediation as well, the way we kind of look at support for far-right ideas and we turn them into legitimate grievances. And one of the things we look at in the book is the way it's been built up that we believe that immigration is a major concern for people. And we see that a lot in headlines and we see that a lot of in opinion And the research that we've done with Aaron shows that actually when people are asked what the biggest issues are nationally, immigrations tend to be quite high and tend to kind of match in a way the media coverage of issues of immigration. So in the UK, think, for example, of the Brexit campaign, obviously, but think also of the so-called refugee crisis in 2016 across Europe or terrorist attacks. And this tends to kind of make anti-immigration sentiment skyrocket. But when the same people are asked at the same time, the two biggest issues are for them personally, immigration doesn't rate all of a sudden. People don't care about immigration anymore. And so what we're keen to explore is this process of mediation. We're not saying that people don't care about immigration, but why is it that they care about immigration when they think about the national level, you know, the imagined community that Benedict Anderson was talking about? And why don't they care about it when they think about their day-to-day lives? And when they think about their day-to-day lives, they tend to think about issues of pensions, cost of living, all of these kind of things that are, of course, far more beneficial to a left-wing or center-left or progressive agenda. But instead, we tend to talk a lot more about immigration. And that's what we found out during the Brexit campaign, for example, or during, sorry, the campaign about the EU referendum, which is that immigration was disproportionately covered during that campaign. And so that's what we mean by, in a way, the the support being exaggerated. It's exaggerated because it doesn't take into account abstention. And we ended up talking far too much about a tiny minority of the population that is still far too big, obviously, and dangerous. But also, we tend to think about these people as if their knowledge of the situation is not mediated at all as if they are just voting in a vacuum. Right. And this leads me to the two points that I think you are particularly outspoken on social media and also take a position that is not necessarily shared by the vast majority of colleagues who work on the far right. You have a particular ire for The Guardian, the center-left newspaper in Britain, and you have problems with the term populism. And I think these issues are related. So can you explain what the problem here is? They are partly related, but I'll still take them separately and probably mix them a bit. But my issue with The Guardian is, I mean, to be clear, this this is still one of the newspapers that I read my day-to-day news and news intake. But it's not just with The Guardian, if you want. It's The Guardian as a symptom of a broader crisis. is a democratic crisis where the media no longer plays the role it should in many ways. You know, I've seen it anecdotally in various news that I read about various subjects that I'm not an expert on. But the one that I'm an expert on is the far right and populism. And so that's why I ended up doing some research on that. And I researched with Aaron, but also with Katie Brown, the uses of populism in The Guardian. And we felt before we started the research that the way The Guardian used the word populism was hyped. This is something that we talked about with Jason Greenos, the concept of populist hype, the way we ended up talking far too much about populism and it tended to conceal and to euphemize far-right politics in many ways. And quite often what we ended up seeing was people or parties being called populists instead of being called far-right. And I'm not against saying that Marine Le Pen is populist and I'm not against saying that Nigel Farage or Donald Trump are populist, but they're not just populist. And saying that they're populist doesn't help us very much, in fact, for various reasons, right? A, it creates equivalencies with left-wing populists, which have nothing to do with the far-right populist. But it's also, from my point of view, and various other people have argued that as well, of course, it kind of legitimizes them in a way. It euphemizes the fact that they are far-right 
however we define the far right, whether we want to define it as authoritarian, nativist, racist, whatever, it's still a lot better to be called populist. And that's why from the 1990s, Jean-Marie Le Pen himself was trying to push the word populism into the forefront. We saw Matteo Salvini wearing a t-shirt, I am a populist. Marine Le Pen said she would love to be called the populist and so on. They never said that they wanted to be called extreme right, far right or fascist, right? In fact, Marine Le Pen threatened to sue people who would call her extreme right. And I think Salvini might have done the same as well. And Donald Trump, of course, saying that he was the least racist person in the United States. But when it comes to populism, they love it. And why do they love being called populist? Well, because it links them to the people through the simple word populism that links to people, popular, and so on and so forth, but also because it allows them to portray themselves as the alternative to a very much despised system at the moment, for good or bad. I'm not saying that the system should be despised, but it clearly is at the moment. It's not working for a lot of people. There's a lot of discontentment. And this, in a way, kind of participate in creating this myth of the far right as the alternative because they are populist and popular. And they speak about so-called legitimate grievances. They speak for the white working class and so on, even though all of these myths can be debunked. So what frustrates me about The Guardian is that it should know better. And in fact, The Guardian has brought on many, you know, experts to kind of write op-eds. I mean, you've been one of them. Uh, there's been various others who have written that. And then the next day, they will publish an article where they'll use the word populism to talk about Ed Sheeran, you know, and it's just not useful. And so what we did in our research with Katie is look at all the articles that had been published within a year when The Guardian was running their new populism series. And there were some great articles, but there were so many that used the word populism so carelessly that it ended up being meaningless in a way. Now, I do love debates about populism, but I don't think it's a particularly useful term anymore in our media landscape, particularly when we are facing threats of an increasingly emboldened far right and extreme right and fascism. Since 2016, when Brexit and Trump took much of the social sciences community by surprise, hundreds if not thousands of scholars and students have jumped onto the study of either populism or the far right. You also spoke about problems in the academic community of studying the topic, and particularly of so-called gatekeepers, which I assume I myself am one of. So what should these young scholars do and not do, and what should the gatekeepers in particular do and not do? I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, there's a number of issues which I think are not particularly different from what we see, you know, in the media and the wider political world. But I think what frustrates me about academia is at times the lack of reflection that really should be core to our work, particularly as social scientists. I think there are issues of gatekeeping, but these issues of gatekeeping, I think, are across academia. They're not necessarily limited to populism, far-right studies or anything like that. And I think what we need to do is to make sure when we become gatekeepers is to kind of keep an eye out on more kind of critical takes on our topics. Not necessarily because we have to agree with them, but I think because it's what challenges us as well, right? You know, I disagree with plenty of what I read day in, day out, but I think it helps me as well. You know, sometimes I find out that I was wrong. Sometimes I find out that, you know, actually I disagree with what I've read, but it helps me kind of sharpen my thinking. And I think, you know, most of us are doing this and most of us should be doing this when we get to stages of our career, when we are a bit more established. The bigger problem, I think, that I've seen in far-right studies is the one that you pointed to at the moment, which is, you know, after Trump, after Brexit, you know, after January 6th, the virus terrorist attacks. I think it's this bandwagoning effect that worries me most in a way, because the neoliberalization of academia forces us to kind of abide by metrics. You know, we need to sell, right? We need the citations, we need the quotes, we need to be seen, we need the dissemination, we need all of these things. And so, you know, the easiest way to achieve that is to go to topics that are hot. And it's not just the far right or populism, it could be the environmental crisis, for example, at the moment. And I think this bandwagon effect is really, really problematic because quite often we see articles that haven't done due diligence to the field. 
but I've gone mainly to a couple of the main texts, sometimes not even having read them very well. So it leads to some bad practice from my point of view, because we should do due diligence to the literature on a particular topic. But I think it's particularly problematic for early career researchers because it crowds the field with bad research. And the early career researchers who are really the kind of sharpest researchers at the moment, who have dedicated lives of their PhDs studying these issues and these politics, find themselves crowded out by kind of mid-career academics who had been working on something else and feel like they can jump in that bandwagon, get an article published because their name is known by editors, and then crowd out the field for more challenging and interesting research. And so I think, you know, as gatekeepers, I don't want to say that I'm a gatekeeper necessarily, but I'm in the stage of my career now that I'm mid-career, where we need to support early carry researchers. It's not about policing the field, you know. I think anyone who wants to study the far right should, but I think it needs to be done seriously because there's so much at stake. There's always been so much at stake in the field of far right studies, and we can't risk crowding up that field and pushing out particularly very exciting young researchers for kind of articles that actually say nothing, but they have some new quantitative data to push through. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the far right? Ha, the greatest one. Am I only allowed one? No. You can have more if you want to. Now, I'll try and think of one. I'll come back to something we talked about before. To me, the greatest misunderstanding is that the far right is more popular than it really is. Let me illustrate that with an anecdote. I was near Saint-Étienne for a family event, and some of my family is still working class, and I was chatting to one of my cousins, and we were talking about politics, and I think a, an election was about to come up or something like that. We were chatting about politics, and we were getting a bit excited about it, and he was getting excited as well, and, and he was saying, like, oh, you know what really annoys me, really? And I'm like, oh, God, he's going to tell me that he's going to vote for Marine Le Pen, right? You know, and everything was going through my head, like, okay, how am I going to handle that, what I'm going to be saying, and all of this. I was like, what really annoys me, and, you know, the pressure was building, and he says, what really annoys me is that I keep reading that the working class supports the Front National, but why would I support the Front National? You know, my colleagues, they're black, they're Muslim. You know, it's not my colleagues the problem, it's my boss who doesn't treat me right. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I knew the figures. I knew that there was one chance out of 10 that he would be a far-right voter or far-right supporters. And yet I had fallen for it, even though I knew that. And that shows the prejudice that we all hold about these kind of things, right? And that's what I mean about us challenging ourselves as well. And that's why the Guardian annoys me and Guardianistas annoy me. And I'm a Guardianista myself as well, is that we have a picture of a world that is so incredibly flawed that allows us to put the blame for the rise of the far right onto others. And we don't look at ourselves in a way, I think quite seriously enough. And the role we play in actually legitimizing certain ideas, pushing certain ideas, demonizing certain communities, and so on. So I think, you know, what we need to do is really counter that idea that the far right is popular and understand why it is popular and through kind of which mediatory processes it is made popular. I think that's a brilliant ending. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Aurelien. Thank you. You can follow Aurelien Mondon on Twitter at, at Aurel Mondon, and you can order his book, Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far Right Became Mainstream, written together with Aaron Winter and published by Verso in 2020 at or through your independent bookstore. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall and I'm your host Cas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me pa, 
blast it. Give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunk out, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capital turned out a little weird.